when Asmukh Bhai gave this theme towards the future, what came to me was to break it into three parts. On one day we speak of the past ons because the future does not stand on a non-base. Many of us like to go into the future, but as if the future hangs from nowhere without a base. Shobindo, who spoke of his one of the celebrated sentences where he said, we do not belong to the dawns of the past, but to the noons of the future, also said that when you break the past, make sure that you preserve its spirit or else you have no future. So, of past ons and on the second day of the present crisis and on the third day towards the future. But what is amazing is that when Narad was reading those lines, everything that in the three talks I could imagine, I mean, nothing has been planned, but I could imagine that could be said by all these speakers was already contained in it. If we could really hear the lines carefully, everything was there. And one of the first things that strikes us, yesterday night we had this little session on the psychic consciousness. And we were sharing how we have to, the first thing before we speak of a new hope, the first thing is to have a new vision, a new birth, a birth out of a mind and its limited, divided and dividing, clouded vision which is all the time pulled by the senses, colored by the senses, colored by emotions, colored by all kinds of preferences, colored by desire, so that we never really see reality. That's why we had this beautiful one line which summarized everything. When Shravinda says that how our mind and life and its early strivings, what they have done so far, and then he gives that master, master touch when he says an unborn power must build reality. There is a power which is yet to be born. Of course, we know now it is born, but Shirobinda when he wrote Savitri speaks of an unborn power and it has to be born in heart to heart. It is born now in the world, a new world. The mother, when she gave this message about the supramental descent, she says, a new world is born, born, born. And then she goes on to say that it's not just a new conception. It's not just a new way of looking at old things. It is an entirely new world, a new creation, something which has never happened so far, something that the world is witnessing the birth of a new world. But we also know that every time a new force, a new consciousness has entered the earth, before it can establish itself, before it can assert itself, before it can spread itself in all its many-sided splendor, the vital forces, the forces of mind, the old world intervenes 
to give it a very very different appearance and therefore the new world has to struggle through all these mazes, through all these appearances. It is as if goes below a layer of humanity and then it must come out breaking through all these layers which Asmukhbhai was referring to in the mother's message that the great battle of the future between the truth that is born and all the falsehood that surrounds it all around, stifling it or worse still, imitating it because it's one thing to oppose truth, it's quite another to imitate it. So, but this is an inevitable process and we have been assured of the victory of the new world which we just read and also in that beautiful music which I think is the mantra of today's age, Satyame Vijayate Nanditam. The truth shall win and not the falsehood. So this is the theme of this whole journey. But to see it, to see our past, to see our present, to see even our individual life, we need a new orientation and a new vision. Not by the mind can the truth be known. Shurabindu says one of the first things necessary in yoga, what should be the first step of yoga? What kind of breathing exercises should we do? What kind of asana the best? What kind of meditation is the most useful? Which technique is helpful? Shurabindu says the first thing we need to do is to exchange this surface orientation, this clouded vision of the ego with a deeper orientation. The surface orientation is that which puts the individual ego and its little interest at the center of life and imagines God to be a genie who must dance around to our own tune. Like a slave, we need to only order God and He must create for us what our life desires. And when that is smashed, we say, there is no God who says there is a new world. I only see the slain corpse of my desire. But we do not know that what is slain is only the beginning of a new start. The dead returns in a new body. It is given a new form, a new consciousness. Thus we can cast our look back. We read yesterday those lines from Savitri. How when we look from the psychic vision, there is a way of looking at life from our ego-bound vision, which is clouded by appearances. I envisage if there was CNN, IBN at the time of the crucifixion of Christ or at the time of the great Mahabharata war, what they would have reported through all the TV channels about the crisis. They would have said there was a herdsman who was misguiding people and finally the state has been able to fix him up. What they would have said about Krishna? Oh, that cowboy, not cowboy, sorry. <laughs> All the same, Krishna is a cowboy. <laughs> oh, that, that boy who used to milk the cows, who has risen to fame by notorious means. And there would have been two line entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica, that who was Krishna? He, he was a charioteer of the great mighty armed warrior Arjuna who shook the earth by his bow and arrows. This is the human vision. But time comes.
conceals something else in its depths. And time unveils that he who was crucified was victorious from the cross. And they who crucified, they knew not what they are doing. And the names are forgotten and washed by the dust and sands of time. That he who was driving the chariot as a milkman was not just the driver of the chariot, but driver of the ways of humanity through the great war. And because of him, great nations were born. And because of him, hope is sustained and faith is rekindled in human hearts. There is a very little story in, in the context of the Mahabharata that when the war is over, Sanjay, who has the divine vision by grace, and Dhritarashtra, who is like us, the blind king. So he asks, what is the purpose of all this chaos? I don't understand. People say it is the age of Krishna and Krishna, this, they glorify him. But what has he done after all? Such a battle in which brothers have killed brothers, flung upon each other's. How nice if he could somehow bring them together in a very nice peace pact and you know, everything would have been so beautiful. They say he is divine. What is this divinity which has destroyed an entire clan of great warriors? So, Sanjay has this to say, that blind king, I know you are blind by birth like all human beings. But what is a greater curse is that you are not only physically blind, but you are also psychologically and spiritually blind. Because there is no greater curse than that. It's one thing to be physically blind and quite another to be spiritually blind. But he says, I'll tell you one thing. I have seen the great battle and I have seen the beginning and I have seen the end of this battle. And I must tell you that much, much later, when the ages have passed, when men would have forgotten whether there was actually a war or not, they would doubt the very existence of such weapons which could destroy civilization, which had the power to destroy civilizations on the tip of an arrow, people would doubt whether these were myths or legends, whether this actually took place, where there were really men like Arjuna and Bhima or they were just fictions of the human mind because history doesn't document these depths and it's forgotten much later when human beings you know, begin to read it. So he says, but two things will survive and they are enough recompense for all this crisis. What are those two things? He says, when men would have forgotten that there was a war or not, the vision of the integral Godhead that I have seen, the one who is behind this entire play, the one who is creating and absorbing worlds in a breath, whose single breath is enough to dispel a million, million armies. We read that beautiful line, we just heard it, Vidyanti, Hridagranti, Chidyanti, Sarvasanshya, whose little touch is so liberating. I have seen that and humanity will remember this vision. It's not just Arjuna who has seen it, humanity has seen it and it will return again and again to reconstitute that great vision that I have seen on this battlefield. And another thing that will survive is the great Koloki its liberating effect, what I have heard and what Arjuna has heard and no other one has heard, I can tell you 
it will survive and humanity will be liberated by its effect. It's amazing. It's really true how the Gita has survived. Words given in the war field. Nobody to type, nobody to record. We didn't have these sophisticated devices. How the words of these great ones have survived despite all the destruction by time. So when we take a look back at the human past, there is a way of looking at it by the clouded eyes of the ego. And when we see by the eyes of the ego, we see nothing but chance and clash of circumstances. We see random events. As someone has very beautifully said in a small little story that a king wanted to know the history of the entire world. So, you know, there was a great historian and he, you know, dug out all the details and he wrote history and it took volumes, you know. They were, after 15 years, he marched into the king's court and he said, I have the history of the world with me. So, what is the history of the world? He says, well, sir, you have to allow me to bring all the files, the books into the court and I have about 10 donkeys and on each donkey there are 10 volumes of all that I have documented. So the king says, you expect me to read all this? Sir, you asked me. Well, can you make it little brief and concise? He says, as you say, because anyways he is being paid by the state, doesn't matter. So he goes another 10 years and he comes back, this time just about 5 donkeys and 5 volumes each. So the king says, have a heart, my dear fellow. You know, I am wearing these thick glasses. And the doctors say that I am soon in for a cataract surgery. Can you make it little more brief? So after another few years, he comes on one donkey with ten volumes. He says, I appreciate your efforts. Just a little more. You know, now I, am, I can see that I am on the deathbed. And I don't want to die without having read the history of the world. So by now he has read it, read it all over again and again and again. So he says, King, you know, I can do it now in one day. Oh, one day? That will be very nice. So next day he comes, takes out a little folded paper from his hand. He says, this is the history of the world. So what is this history of the world? Men were born, they lived, they died. <laughs> this is the history of the world. This is the outer vision. If you look at the outer vision, this is what we see. Men were born, they live, they die. What is the deeper vision? Shivinda says very beautifully in a few aphorisms. Man dies so that mankind may live. Men die so that God is born. And he gives us a very beautiful play, a clue. Respect the life of man, but respect more the life of humanity. It's very beautiful that we, when we look at the surface, we see nothing. When we go into the depths, we see through all this churning and turmoil. It's like when a farmer tills the soil, many tillings, many tillings, and we see nothing is happening. But ask of the farmer, why are you doing all this labor? Are you a fool? Sometimes we say that God must be a fool to create this world and do all this. That's why someone who had a surface vision, or rather, who wrote this describing the surface vision of man. That when we look at the surface facts of life, whether our individual or collective life, we may well say that this life 
is nothing but a tale told by an idiot with much sound and fury but without any meaning in it. This is the surface vision. But there is a deeper vision and we look at the deeper vision we see behind all these tillings of the soil, layer after layer of humanity. There is something which is happening inside, a little seed is preparing itself to emerge into the sun. And these tillings, so many tillings are required in this whole process. Shogunda says that what we call today is the savage is not an original savage, but the descendant of a once developed civilization. Now today we are really on the verge of, there are, there are reports which say that, yes, uh, this is not the only cycle of humanity. There have been many, many cycles which have come and gone. The problem with us humans is that we live only for 85 years or maybe <laughs> that's the average lifespan I'm seeing or maybe for 100 years and we want to understand God within those 100 years. Not even those. We see the events of those 100 years and we decide the future and the fate of this world. But there is hope despite all this. Asmambhai was saying, what is the hope of this crisis? There is hope because there is the divine. There are two ways we can understand life. One, from the psychic depths. And when we look at it, we see that all these revolutions that pervade the earth are but faint beginnings. In music, those of us who are familiar with music know that, you know, in music there is a very long period which is called as alap. If you ever go for an overnight concert, I went once running away from the college premises to hear Pandit Ravi Shankar throughout the night and was very excited about the whole event. So we gate crashed because we couldn't afford the ticket. And, you know, it started and we are waiting for the real thing to come up, what we thought is the real thing. <laughs> so 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we were thinking in just setting the instrument, you know, like what little bit, half an hour, one hour. So we started getting bored and sleepy. So. I asked my friend, what's this happening? So all of, all of them were like me, you know, completely ignorant. <laughs> so we waited and waited. So it, it, it was almost two hours and we thought, I think we should just go away from here. Then we felt a little pace is picking up, you know, slightly. Thank God we waited. We didn't quit the game. Some of us seeing the early beginnings of life, either individual or collective, we say, oh, this life. So boring, so difficult, so terrible. Let's quit. Let's find the shortcut to Nirvana. And whoever can give us a ticket at the easiest price, $2,000 course for one week and you're launched into Nirvana, we rush to that Babaji. <laughs> we don't have patience to play the whole game. So we waited and waited. And slowly this little Allah began to grow into a melody and music and we didn't know whether we slept or kept awake or what we received but by, by morning we were really lover of that music. It's, it's amazing. Much later I learned that the, the better the, you know, if, if a person has to play a real raga to its utmost, the alap must be prolonged 
otherwise you you, you know you cannot it's not like a, a fast food restaurant this universe that god just puts puts things in a microwave and you know they just come out fine it's a slow cooking and a slow brewing so that the very essence of everything comes out and with that essence that's the difference between soup and just putting things into the fire and taking out because the essence comes out and that essence the sap of life when we look at life from that vision everything becomes very different or if we don't have that vision then we have an alternative choice or perhaps that's the first thing we need to do and shubhendra says we must carry faith in the heart what is this faith he says triple faith the faith that there is divine in this world behind all the anomalies and apparent clash and chaos this is the first faith it's not a religious faith or a dogma but it makes a world of difference if really if there is no divine in this world then what is the big deal whatever we may say or do all our speculations and intellectualizations and extrapolations and imaginings have no value because at the base of the world there is nothing and if there is nothing at the base everything collapses back into nothing but if there is something or someone like a divine or an infinite like a presence sublime like something which is at once sweet and strong like the right arm of love and which carries in itself the bosom of love and an arm of courage and knowledge as the right and left limbs then there is hope for this world not because of us but because of that presence so he says first faith is that there is the divine in the world second faith is that if he has called you to the path if he has awakened this in us the aspiration then there must be a purpose in it sometime when we look at ourselves and we look at the appearances we say well i am the most disgusting creature but if something has touched us and called us however disgusting i may be to myself or to others he knows and we must trust him and the third faith he says that if he has called us he will carry us through our difficulties notwithstanding if this is true of an individual it is far more true of this universe who is managing this world who is managing this universe who is behind this great governance of life are these stars hung in space just like that shobindo tells us the entire story of the past how it has emerged out of nothing it doesn't stand on an anomalous space the first thing divine does is he lays matter as the base for a great evolutionary journey it's only the base the platform and we have a tendency to over identify with the platform just as we over identify with the form all this is human nature it's not you know we we just think that is all but on this platform the first thing it does the entire evolutionary journey the first thing is does the most difficult challenging task which the divine has performed matter is asleep inert always in trance it's not always good to be in trance matter is in trance not all trance is a spiritual trance many trances are trance of sleep and we believe we have done a very great meditation 
but actually very often we also fall into inconscience. So matter is in trance, forever in trance. What is brooding inside it? Scientists would tell us that there is a kinetic energy going on inside, some kind of motion. Like something striving to be born, like inside an egg, there is a restlessness inside human beings. Even when we have a very calm exterior, something is restless inside us. Have you ever wondered what is striving to be born through all this? Outside everything looks fine. There are human beings, I mean, everybody faces these things in life. As a psychiatrist I have faced that people have committed acts which are really unimaginable. Suicide, for instance. And later on people say, but I saw that person, he was so calm, he was so quiet. The first thing that yoga teaches us and the last thing that life teaches us is that don't be deceived by appearances. Behind the calm exterior, something is going on. Behind the inertia of matter, something is brewing and within it, someone is brooding in the silences of the matter. And this someone or something comes out as life. This was the first difficult task. Life which forever moves. That's why in the ancient Indian scriptures, the characteristic of life is movement. Everything that moves is living, including the watch that we wear. It's true. Watches have life. They can respond to suggestions. They can actually receive things. In a sense, life is concealed in everything. Even most material objects carry the imprints and the memory of the person who has handled it. Shabindra says that if a yogi was given a sword, which was 300 years old or a thousand years old, by touching it, he could say that what this sword, you know, what uses this sword has been put, put to. It carries in itself a subconscious memory, which carries the imprint. Even for the earth, Shabindra says there is a terrestrial memory. And what, if one could enter into it, one could know all the events of the past. I'm reminded of a little anecdote when mother, you know, in playground there used to be these movies. It's an interesting ashram. They show movies on Saturdays. So, <laughs> so <laughs> and meditation, collective meditation on Sundays <laughs> and Thursdays. Anyway, so when a movie was being shown, um, I forget what exactly was it. Was it related to the Egyptian era or the Greek war, but nevertheless, when, when the movie was being screened, the mother suddenly made this remark, but it never happened that way. <laughs> she didn't have to read a book, but it never happened that way. It was everything she knew, because one could have an access to the terrestrial history. And then she, she tells in one of her talks, my child, Historians know nothing. Because to know they have to go into that zone where actually events have taken place and then only they can document the realities. We look at the surface foam and froth. But what lies in the depths? So what lies in the depths of the matter is life striving to be born. And when it is born, it's amazing. It changes the laws of matter. We speak of the solution. Matter, law is, everything from space must fall down. 
by the power of gravitation. So life says, is it? It had not read Newton's law, thank God, because you know, when you read Newton's law, you believe, no, it must fall down. So man will never imagine ever to fly, because Newton has bound him down. But life has not read and it doesn't care. So the first thing is, does it, the root goes down, but the shoot keeps coming up. Tearing through the gravity, challenging and defying it, it grows into a tree towards the sky. Pulled and attracted by what? The sun. What is, how does sun's gravity relate with the earth? And yet, despite all the gravitational pull, it defies it, challenges it and a tree is born upon the silent, barren hills. And life begins to swim inside the depths of the ocean. This is the first difficult challenging task and God or nature has already accomplished it. I don't think any other task will be more difficult. And then in this dumb inarticulate life, we often again speak of so many kinds of crises. Now look how nature solves the crisis. Imagine a time when plants were crowding this earth. And though it's very good nowadays to, you know, because they are vanishing, it's not good. But at one time, I'm sure they must have faced global extinction because of an excess of oxygen in the atmosphere. Plants, as we know, they breathe in carbon dioxide and they release oxygen. And quite naturally, an age must have been there when this must have been very difficult because, you know, if there are too many plants, there would be so much oxygen that they will die. They need carbon dioxide. So, imagine a committee of plants coming together and trying to find all the solutions. <laughs> and after they have gone with all the resolutions and, you know, all the things that the United Nations of plants must pass, God has another thing up his sleeve. And he says, okay, doesn't matter, I'll have a life form which will breathe oxygen and give out carbon dioxide. Happy? So plants are happy. Problem is solved. That which seemed to be threatening becomes a complementary. It's amazing how the divine solves the problem. And then out of this, there's a new emergence of a thinking creature. Now it's very interesting that with each new emergence in the past when we look at the evolutionary history, that which was the great capacity of the past is lost and a new capacity is born and later on the past has to be reintegrated with the present. That's why evolution is such a complex process. We just think that God must give a magic wand and you know suddenly now the supramental world is there so there is no problem. And everybody should begin to fly and have, must have bodies of light. There are even people who are, you know, trying to do those kind of yoga and saying that now you don't need super mind and psychic being and all this and outdated stuff. We need technology and that's enough. This is one of those usual <laughs> distortions that take place. But let's see how nature does it with how much patience. When out of the creatures of the water... The creatures of the land are born. We know that this is the evolutionary history. What do they lose? The ability to breathe in water. They must undergo that loss. There is no other way they can come onto the land. What do they gain? The ability to run on the plains. 
A fish can't do that. A crocodile can't do it with all its strength. But the creatures of the land can do it. So out of the creatures of the land, the creatures of the air, what they must lose is the ability to run on the land. Ostrich is an exception, but it cannot fly like that. They must lose that ability. But in the bargain, they develop wings that can carry them to the air. And if these creatures of the air must once again come back as quadrupeds and bipeds, what must they lose? The ability to fly and gain something anew. Now this process is going on and finally when man emerges, he must lose all the sharp instincts of the animal, the vital force of the animal. That's why animals, animals survive without filtered water. We can't. We fall sick. Animals survive, thankfully. I have a feeling that they survive because there are no doctors in the animal world. <laughs> let's be a little more kind to the doctors. Otherwise, when I go back, they'll probably ban me from, you know, being part of the medical association. <laughs> but nevertheless, animal world has no doctors. Nobody is there to tell them, you know, that this is this disease or that disease. And yet, animal world has not only survived, but evolved into human beings. But when we develop into human beings, we lose many of these abilities. One of the things is this tremendous vital force. We need clothes to cover our bodies. We are, you know, af we are afraid of everything. You know, we may catch cold if there is cold. We may have a heat stroke if there is heat. We may die of excess. We may die of less. My God, so many things the mind has to take care. This food, that food and all kinds of books. With all kinds of foods. And if you read two books, no two books tell the same thing. One will praise milk like anything. They will say milk is the only diet. You read another book, it will say never touch milk, never go to it. From cancers to, you know, everything is all milk. So we have these extreme views because mind is like that. But poor animal doesn't know whether he should drink milk or not. Nature tells it drink milk, it drinks milk. And it usually lives a normal lifespan. So when the mind comes, it loses all the vitality of the animal. Because that's the condition. But does it lose? No, it integrates all this. The dreams of the past, their essence live on and they take a new form. The fish is not lost. It lives in the man. That's why human beings not only love to swim with their mind, they will create submarines and ships that sail across the oceans because the ship is the, the fish is alive in us even in our womb we re, in fact we go through all these shapes <laughs> those who study embryology will tell us that you know we are like a little snake inside like a little tadpole inside and like a little fish inside like a little tortoise and then we are like a little monkey if you really observe you know and then finally we are apparently like, seemingly like human beings. Nature recreates all these stages. They live within us. And because the bird still lives within us, but it has undergone a modification by the mind, man dreams of flying. And he swims into the sea and crosses the ocean unlike the fish. And he flies into space unlike any bird can ever accomplish. Because the mind picks up the essence, drops the form and gives new form to the past.
so also friends we are face to face with the evolutionary crisis this mother says mankind this faculty the pride of the intellect which he carries this is the peak of the old world man must lose this very interesting she doesn't mean words she says for the new creation which will emerge from here from the heart what is meant by this loss it does not mean we should become irrational it simply means our reason must be now informed taken up by something higher by an intuition by by a new faculty which will pick up our reason and integrate it just as we have picked up the dream of the fish and the life of the bird and given it a new form and shape so also reason this faculty of the intellect of which we is, mother uses the word of which man is so rightly and so vainly proud she has a tremendous subtle sense of humor rightly proud because it is the highest which is manifested vainly proud because before the new creation it will pale away so this is the evolutionary journey where we have not only at the mega level even at the level of humanity all the events and circumstances of the past many layers of civilization we see how humanity passes through all these stages of we spoke yesterday of the human soul being schooled through the state of obscurity then desire self then the mind ideas and idealism to a new psychic self so also this happens through human civilizations they pass through a stage of obscurity and when they are in that stage of obscurity their gods are also obscure the human civilization when it it's you know early stages at least in this cycle we know in the earlier cycles we have some documents but most of the documents are lost in some files and records of the past <laughs> but in this present civilization when we really see in the obscure beginnings of civilization we have a even the gods are very obscure they are much like nature you know there is a god who governs this aspect of nature there is a god who governs that aspect of nature as evolution proceeds and man lives by the desire self the gods also assume animal forms they are much like the animal kind god who gets angry and god who punishes god who you know immediately is the benefactor all the qualities we see even the god, the form of the gods in fact some of them have still survived from the ancient egyptian occultism who were forms of animals so how even gods evolve as civilizations evolve and as we grow still greater to the mental world these gods assume a different form altogether we have god of love we have god of mercy we have god of strength we have god of charity we have god of knowledge all the ideas and ideals that human beings can conceive of gods come to typify that and we evolve, we are moving towards a still greater age when all this will be taken up just as god rides over the animal in some very interesting indian myths and also greek myths so we'll have the integral godhead which this humanity is trying to recreate through all these journeys to speak more would be you know it's an endless story talking about the past 
and we would like to speak more of the present crisis and the future. But this just to give a hint of how humanity is evolving through different stages and layers. In a small little book called, uh, it's not a book, it's a collection of essays, in very early essays which was originally written in Bengali. I am saying so that we can, those of us who have access can go back and refer to it. There is a small little essay of Sri Aurobindo, The Chariot of Jagannath. Now we know in Odisha there is the Jagannath Rath Yatra, you know the chariot of Jagannath. Jagannath is the lord of the worlds and he is taken out and everybody is pulling the chariot, the kings and the um, courtiers and the uh, commoner and the ordinary man and the priest, all alike. They are pulling the chariot on the highways. And the great poet Tagore had something very interesting to say. He says, when the chariot is going on through the roads, there are those who fall on the, you know, doing pranam to the Lord. They are falling on the road. So when they fall on the road, the road thinks, I am God. Look, they are falling at my feet. Both jane ami dev. The chariot thinks, no, no, I am God. They are falling at my feet. Roth jane ami dev. And the deity inside the idol thinks, I am God. They are falling at my feet. So the, the dev jane ami dev. And what is the punchline is, hase antaryami. The one who is hidden in the rath, in the path and in the idol, he simply has a laugh. That look. So similarly today, we believe this man or that man is moving this world or changing the events and circumstances. This is simply a limited scene, a trick of the senses. When the divine decides things to happen, they happen in a trice. And when he wants a crisis to continue, then try we may, but things don't happen. I just narrate one example after which we'll read something from Savitri. So in this chariot of Jagannath, Shudhinder speaks of this human civilizations, how they grow through stages of tamas and rajas and sattva. And he says, no civilization till date has ever been able to recreate the ideal society which is typified by the chariot of Jagannath. It is kept for some future age. So it's a very beautiful uh, essay. Please read it if you have access. It's available in English translation by Nolni Gupt, but may not be online. So certain things are still not online and you have to go offline, take the trouble of going to Pondicherry. The book is not freely available, it's available from Vak. Do take it and read it. It's a wonderful masterpiece. Many people who have read works of Shirobita have not read this because it's originally in Bengali. So the event which I was referring to is, look at the Lankan crisis, Sri Lankan crisis. Now for decades this went on, not just years, decades. I think it started almost in early 70s or maybe even before that. And imagine that in spite of all attempts, including the intervention of the Indian Army, IPKF. Now, we, I mean, need not boast about it, but it's a fact that Indian Army is one of the best in the world. Not because of my Air Force background, but I can tell you for sure. <laughs> for sure that, you know, very committed, extremely committed. For an Indian soldier, definitely the life of the nation comes first than his own. And I have seen tremendous stories of 
you know, we talk about selflessness and sacrifice and all these big words and yoga and after that, you know, we are worried about the meal and, you know, we are worried about snatching the next man's. But I have seen the most uneducated fellows, you know, literally saying, Sir, you don't go, I'll step in front. And the officer saying, no, it's my work to lead. It's amazing. I mean, it's been so inspiring. So this army went to Sri Lanka and could not win the war. It's amazing. I mean, there were so many reasons attributed to it. Guerrilla warfare, this, that, but just failed. It had to be withdrawn. India lost its one of its very upcoming prime minister. Yet, look, when the time comes, with all these great men, nothing happened. But when the time comes, the entire thing changes like a pack of cards. What was its purpose? How did it happen? How did it prolong itself? Where is its future? We don't know. But this we know, that when the hour strikes, that nothing can resist it. So this is the hope and this is the faith. So yesterday we read about the Yes, just a couple of minutes. This is because uh, very often people think that Shurabindo, you know, it's all very high philosophy, but does he know the facts of the world? Does he know how we look at life? Shurabindo very much knows. He knows both kinds of seeing. He knows the seeing of avidya, he knows the seeing of vidya. He knows the divided seeing of human mind, and he knows the uh, unity, the consciousness by which all can be known in all time. So yesterday we read about that fire within us which knows the line of sempiternal birth. It is the secret, a burning witness in the sanctuary where it regards through time and the blind walls of form. He sees the secret things no words can speak. So there is in us a knower of that kind. But at the same time, Shubindu contrasts it with the surface vision. But all is screened, subliminal, mystical. It needs the intuitive heart, the inward turn. It needs the power of a spiritual gaze. If we really want to make sense of what is there in the past, our own individual and this world, we have to discard our surfacing. It's just not possible by any intellectual theory or intellectual mind and the sense data to arrive at the truth of things. What we need to develop is the intuitive heart and the inward turn and the power of a spiritual gaze. Else to our waking mind's small moment look, a goalless void seems our dubious course. Some chance has settled or hazarded some will or a necessity without aim or cause, unwillingly compelled to emerge and be. These are the theories we find. This all a chance, this a random game, some weird necessity, desire that created this world. Shivinda says all this is the waking mind surface view. In this dense field where nothing is plain or sure, our very being seems to us questionable. Our life a vague experiment, this soul a flickering light in a strange, ignorant world. To the surface vision, which we must 
exchange for this deeper vision, even our existence appears unsure. Really, if we take the pure atomic theories, it's strange. Shubhendra writes in one of his poems, a strange and unreal gospel science brings ephemeral creatures for eternity must live. It's very strange that if we are really made of dust, then what is our existence? Are we really chemicals? We go to doctors and they drum it, yes, you are a chemical. So you ask the doctor, you are also a chemical? <laughs> Please ask sometimes, you know. It's very interesting. He would suddenly, you know, yeah, I am not a chemical. All these theories are by chemicals. Chemicals have theorized about chemicals. It's strange. So here he says, our very existence, if you look at the surface vision, our very existence appears questionable. The earth a brute mechanic accident, a net of death in which by chance we live. To the surface vision, the sun comes out of the bosom of the night and goes back into the night. To a deeper vision, there is no night and there is no day. The earth turns towards the sun or it turns away from the light. But the sun ever shines in the splendor of the skies. All we have learned appears a doubtful guess. The achievement done a passage or a phase whose farther end is hidden from our sight. A chance happening or a fortuitous fate. Out of the unknown we move to the unknown. So we can have questions. This is a very, very, uh, very vast subject. What is the sense and meaning of a past in relation to the future? What is the time frame of this nature's evolution? Yes, that's a very uh, interesting question. The time frame of nature's evolution. Uh, Mother speaks about it that the problem with nature is that nature loves to play and it is, you know, uh, for nature millions of years is nothing. In fact, it enjoys the play. The mother says, I am not sure if it does not enjoy the play. So, same thing about supermind. They said, if you leave it to itself, if, even if humanity doesn't collaborate, for nature, human beings, okay, fine, you just smash and the entire human race may wipe away and, you know, evolution may happen even in the sea. Dolphins may evolve. What is there? But because the passage will be so much full of suffering, it may take millions of years. Therefore, they were hastening and pressing this process. And that is why they spoke of man must collaborate. You know, that message that, you know, it's left to men to decide. That it will happen is a certainty. But whether we collaborate with the change or the crushing circumstances, whether it will be a far off event after million years, well, it will happen. And all these processes, these many cycles, these many strivings and sufferings, or it can be compressed in a few centuries. All yoga is about that. So when this time was asked, Mother has said in one of her um, conversations, in one of her talks, that uh, Shurabindo said it will take uh, 300 to 500 years, about 300 years. And then she says, not for the physical transformation, because about the physical transformation, she says, wait for a thousand years, then we will speak about it. The problem is we want to speak only about that. We don't want to wait for a psychic change and a purification of nature. 
this is human vision, you know, it doesn't know all these things, it only knows the body. Mother said, wait for a thousand years, then we will speak about it. So, not for the physical transformation, but for a fundamental change of consciousness, where the inner consciousness of humanity has arrived at a point where it can live naturally and collectively in a state of uh, intuition, revelation, so naturally that one could clearly say that there is a distinct species where we are no more functioning purely by the operation of the intellect and its stumbling and striving, but by spontaneous knowledge arising from within. Then, because this inner consciousness will press and press and press upon the form and we will have the right knowledge to work out the whole process, not just intellectual knowledge as we have now, but the inner knowledge, what mother was you know, speaking in the agenda, that kind of knowledge when man is ready to receive it, then the physical transformation which may take another maybe a thousand or couple of thousand years. But if you really look from that angle that we have spent million years behind us, then thousand, two thousand or even ten thousand years is nothing but a joyous journey towards the great goal. So of all the things, time is the most difficult to predict, but these are the hints given by Mother and Shobindo. Uh, obviously, if we collaborate, definitely it can be quicker. In fact, she has said, the moment can even be now. And if we do not collaborate, certainly we may, by our own stupidity and foolishness, we may push the event a few centuries further, because for nature it doesn't really matter. Birth and death of civilizations is nothing for it. When somebody asked mother about catastrophes, you know, tsunami came and all these accidents of nature, is it a result of bad deeds and all? Mother says, my child, when you walk on the road, do you, do you even care to see how many ants you are tra trampling on the road? Nature's one stride is like that. A meteor comes and an entire race is wiped off. We think, you know, too great and too powerful. But one hand of nature, a virus can destroy computer systems across the world. It can fell human beings. Human beings are scared now of the swine and the swine flu. So that's why we must be collaborate and time is pressing for that. And put all our energies into this. Yes. Um, we know or at least we've been told about the yugas. Yes. Are we in the process now of another yuga? Yes. Or is this brand new? Yes. Uh, this is a very, again, interesting question about the yugas, the cycles of civilization. And uh, uh, this has been there in the West and the East alike, that there are the four cycles, the age of gold, the age of silver, the age of bronze, and the age of uh, iron, the iron age. In India, they are called as Satyug, Dwapar, uh, Satyug, Treta, Dwapar, and Kalyug. Now, the interesting part is that these cycles, that while... Satyug goes step by step to Kali, the Iron Age. But from the Iron to Gold, it's a leap. You don't go back through the three cycles, you leap. So, Kaliyuga is a passage, this last stage, to, for a new emergence. This is the first thing. Second thing is that, uh, Mother says that according to an occult tradition, we had six such cycles so far, six cycles of these four Yugas. And this is the seventh one, and she says it's been predicted that this is the cycle of equilibrium. So, by equilibrium she means uh, new forces will keep on adjusting, adjusting, evolving, till 
without a destruction we really pass into the new one otherwise every time a destruction had to take place of course destruction of form not of the essence and that is the meaning of the story of great deluge the story of noah's ark and uh, in egypt also there is a similar story and in in indian myth there is the story of the pralaya but in all these stories we have the great boat in which the essence of that civilization is preserved so essence is always preserved it's reabsorbed into the collective consciousness and the world soul just as there is the individual soul there is the world soul so it is absorbed and when this creation starts again it recovers the past tendencies and past things that's why that's one explanation why today suddenly we see that uh, you know people are picking up many things which appear miraculous and you know they are uh, i mean so called we were savages just about a few centuries back not really far back i mean we can't imagine just a few centuries back we were stoning our prophets and we were burning them on the stake but suddenly human beings have an interest in spirituality that's because from a past civilization we have gone rock bottom and now we are emerging and we are you know recovering the lost vedas the third thing that uh, shobindra says that in this passage in times of transition we in fact he has said that this transition has started already and uh, there is a very interesting um, regarding the date line whether we are actually transiting or not um, i am telling you what has been told uh, what has been interpreted by the human mind uh, apparently shobindra somewhere has answered maybe shadhal will be better able to say this that there are you know 175 years this whole process of change takes place and vivekananda seems to have remarked that the day paramansa sri ramakrishna paramansa set his foot on earth the satyug had started so if you really see the transition point of 175 years we actually hit 2012 so we are very close to a period of transition now i do not know the Uh, whole authenticity of this whole thing i have tried to dig into the little bit literature but nevertheless one thing shobindra has said that this is a time of transition when we are transiting from kaliyug to satyug there is a very beautiful prophetic poem of shobindra in the moonlight and we were reading it the other day in, in with the new york study circle and there shobindra says categorically the iron age is ended only now the the great strivings of the earth shall shake the nations and when that has passed earth vast of its ill shall raise a fairer brow so this last spasm of the dying past only now the last spasm of a dying past shall shake the nations and when that has passed earth vast of its ill shall raise a fairer brow so the iron age is ended and the new age has started which is very evident in the children today who are so straight forward so frank and i am so happy i always say even the other day i was saying i feel so inspired to see young people in new york study circle i really felt so inspired that i mean it's amazing at this age you know people normally go to uh, dance uh, bars and pubs and what not and here are youngsters who have come listening to yoga i mean this is new age this cannot be but a new age and uh, so there there is this new age which has started now another thing shobindra says in each such yuga there are sub cycles so in each let us say satyug or an age of gold there is a sub cycle where there is a 
ascent and a descent. So there are moments when it appears that things have become worse and then they re-emerge. Now this process is required because many things have to be worked upon and taken up and integrated. As we were saying the dream of the fish and the dream of the world does not die in man. It is there. It has only lost the form. So it has to be taken up and reborn. So all the problems of the past continue to linger in us and though suddenly when the new age starts there is a kind of revelation and the earth is moved and quickened by a new hope. But then very soon all the vital forces swoop down the forces from the mental world and try to stifle the truth. But then again truth emerges victorious. So this will go on maybe for a few centuries and we will most certainly see the age of gold. Shivindu writes in the same poem, we see at last what John in Patmos saw, what Shelley dreamed, vision and vain imagination dreamed, the city of delight, the age of gold. So definitely the new age has started, not the new age, new age cult, <laughs> which is very often a distortion of the real thing. But the new age is there.